Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 952. To begin this week's show, Jay Jaffe welcomes Sean Gibson, executive director of the Josh Gibson Foundation, Gary Gillette, baseball author and founder and chair of the Friends of Historic Hamtramck Stadium, and Ted Knorr, baseball fan and researcher. These three are the co-founders of the 42 for 21 Committee, dedicated to publicizing deserving Negro Leagues and black baseball candidates for Hall of Fame elections. Jay talked to the trio about the many deserving players who were recently put in the hall, as well as some of those that were whiffed on. They also cover subjects like the importance of inducting living players, renaming the MVP award in honor of Josh Gibson, and how the induction process needs to be improved. I mean, Rap Dixon got caught in a numbers game. Is probably a really good comp for Roberto Clemente. Brilliant right fielder, great arm, an electric player, high average, good power in the prime of his career. Short career, shorter than Clemente's, but he's really, you know, a really good comp as far as the Negro Leagues go. Who would ever think that somebody like that should be not even considered on this ballot? And that's yeah. because of the artificial restriction that, you know, there could only be 10 people on the ballot. After that, David Lorla welcomes Braves right-hander Spencer Strider to the program. David asks Spencer about going all the way from AA to the majors in 2021 and what big changes to his game he had to make to get there. They also cover things like his memorable debut against the Mets, going from being a starter to a reliever, developing a major league changeup, and the best advice he got to elevate and transform his pitching style. So the big key, or the cue for me, that is key, is denting the catcher's mask. That's the phrase that the uh, pitching coordinator with the Braves, Paul Davis, always texts me and, and calls me and tells me that and then hangs up or he'll, you know, every time he sees me, it's the first thing he says to me is dent the mask, dent the mask, because that's where I'm trying to go with the ball. If I can throw a fastball through the catcher's helmet, then that pitch is 99.999% of the time going to produce a favorable result for me. That's how my fastball works. But before we get to these wonderful segments, I must issue you my weekly reminder to scope out the Fangraphs.com shop. We have excellent merch, of course, but you can also pick up one of those fancy-pantsy ad-free memberships, good for browsing the website at blazing fast speeds. It also makes a great gift to the baseball fan in your life that could use a bit more Fangraphs, and it is also the best way to help support the website and everything we do. We sincerely appreciate your help. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. Earlier this week, the National Baseball Hall of Fame announced the results of its Early Baseball and Golden Days era committee voting. A total of six candidates were elected between the two ballots, including Bud Fowler, Buck O'Neill, and Minnie Minoso. Fowler is credited with being the first Black professional player and a pioneer of the barnstorming model that helped lay the groundwork for the survival of Black baseball. O'Neill played first base and managed the Kansas City Monarchs, then went on to become a pioneering major league scout and coach and ultimately served as an outstanding ambassador for black baseball via his co-founding of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, his prominent role in Ken Burns's baseball documentary, his longtime service on the Hall of Fame Veterans Committee, and more. Minoso started his career with the New York Cubans of the Negro National League, then went on to become the first Afro-Latino in the majors and a star in the American League. While Minoso was honored as part of the Golden Days ballot alongside Gil Hodges, Tony Oliva, and Jim Cott, O'Neill and Fowler hailed from the early baseball ballot, which included seven candidates from the Negro Leagues and pre-Negro Leagues Black Baseball. For as exciting as the results were, they contained more than a little bittersweetness. This election marked the first time since the 2006 Special Committee on the Negro Leagues ballot that such candidates were even considered. That committee elected 17 candidates, but famously not O'Neill, who died later that year. 
In the wake of that election, the Hall said that the books were closed on the Negro Leagues, pending more information coming forth from the research community. Since then, the efforts of Seamheads, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, the Society for American Baseball Research, and others were now in what one of my guests called the golden age for Negro Leagues and Black Baseball Research. And with that and this recent election cycle, it's quite apparent that by following the current rotation within the ERA committee schedule and waiting for another 10 years to consider the candidacies of John Donaldson, Vic Harris, Cannonball Dick Redding, Grant Holmland Johnson, George Tubby Scales, all of whom were on the ballot, and those who just missed it, is not the way to go. My guests today from the 42 for 21 committee are hoping to raise enough awareness of this issue to get the hall to consider more frequent elections for such candidates and help correct the inequities within the hall of fame. With me here today are three members of the 42 for 21 committee, Sean Gibson, who's the executive director of the Josh Gibson Foundation, Gary Gillette, who's the founder and chair of the Friends of Historic Hamtramck Stadium, and Ted Knorr, baseball fan and researcher. Hello, guys. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having us on. Glad you guys could join us here. Let's talk first of all about the recent election results. This was the first time that Negro Leagues and pre-Negro Leagues Black baseball candidates were considered since the 2006 special committee. We got three players from that group were elected on the two ballots, Buck O'Neill, Bud Fowler, and Minnie Minoso. Just wanted to hear, first of all, your, your general imp- impression of, of the results and, and, and how this went down. Sean, why don't you answer first here? Yeah, well, well, first of all, thank you for having us on here, um, having our group on here to talk to you about this, and really, really appreciate it. But yeah, as you mentioned, that the um, three players from the Hall of, I mean, from the Negro Leagues did go in. As you mentioned, uh, Minnie Manuso, Bud Fowler, and and Buck O'Neill. So I think Buck O'Neill, I think, was a pretty obvious that he would probably get in after all the things that he's done and especially with everything that's going on right now, the museum and everything that's going around with, with black baseball, you know, the results, you know, we thought it'd be some other players going in as well. I saw Vic Harris had a lot of votes. Uh, he wasn't able to get in, but of course, Bud Fowler got in and uh, Minnie Manuso. And so, um, you know, our goal is here for this committee. We'll get more into this is not to have this every 10 years is to have this happen every year. So this is our big push for this right now. So, uh, but the guys who are winning, we're very excited about those guys. It's a start, but it's not a finish. But it's definitely a start to get us moving towards our, our bigger goal is try to get more players in uh, before 2031. Gary, Ted, do either of you want to add anything to that? Ted, why don't you go first? Well, uh, again, like Sean said, I'm happy with the three that got in. Unhappy with a few on the ballot that didn't. Uh, Vic Harris, George Scales, and Dick Redding in particular. And... Uh, I will also, like Sean, this cannot wait another decade to be considered again. Right. I mean, Ted and Sean hit the nail on the head. This is just, I want to say it's criminal uh, that the Hall thinks it can wait till 2031 to do this. Right now, we have four people still alive who played in the major Negro Leagues. That is in the Negro American League, Negro National League, or one of the other recognized leagues before 1949. They're not going to be around in 10 years, I don't think. Willie Mays is one of them. I don't know what Willie's current health is, but wouldn't it be great to have a ceremony if Willie could be there? And one of the four is uh, in, in my own backyard in Detroit, Ron Teasley, who had a cup of coffee, a little bit more than that, but not much, with the 1948 Cubans when they were the defending Negro World Series champions. Ron is not, will be 95 next month. 
he's in a rehab facility after breaking his leg. I'd love to see other Negro leaguers, a lot more Negro leaguers, get recognition. So these guys who played with them or against them, or in some cases played with people who were teammates of them, would be able to stand there uh, on the dais or sit on the dais at Cooperstown. It's just, it's crazy. We are 50 years past the induction of Satchel Page into the Hall of Fame. 50 years. And we're still talking about who who should be in there. I mean, how how much more, how many more times do we have to pick through the pile of rejected white guys before we get serious about putting Negro leaguers and black baseball players from the segregated area in there? Yeah, I you know, in going through the two ballots, because there was some there was some crossover. I mean, I know some of these candidates have been considered, you know some of the white candidates were considered 20 times, 15 or 20 times by the writers. And then at least at a preliminary stage, more than a dozen times, you know, in terms of the the, the veterans committees, it's it's like, look, it's not going to happen for Allie Reynolds. Why do you put, why do you keep putting him on here? At the same time, I was surprised when the, when the early baseball ballot was announced that seven of the 10 spots went to, went to Negro leagues and pre-Negro leagues candidates. And then as I, covered those guys uh, at Fangraphs, I learned just how deep that set of seven was. And that, you know, I know from from previous conversations with Ted, who kind of tugged at my sleeve this summer to pay attention to the to this process a bit more, just there's, you know, incredible depth and maybe not not a not incredible consensus among the the, the research community as to who should be on that ballot. I know that, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second here, but, you know, anytime you've got a, you've, you've got a, a ballot this deep, there's always going to be disappointment. I mean, look at, you know, what happened on the, on the, on the golden days ballot. It's amazing that four candidates got in when there are 16 committee members and only four votes per, per voter and 64 slots. And we almost got a fifth in Dick Allen fell short by, by one vote. And I don't want to dwell on that because there's a whole can of worms there, but remarkable to get four. It would have been nice to get four from this ballot. I just, there's so much depth and so many different ways you can go. And because there's so, you know, this is so overdue with so much research behind it. it, it you're right. It, it can't wait. I mean, and it's not, of course, just the Negro, a few Negro league players that are out there. None of whom, of course, are under consideration for the Hall of Fame. Willie's already in. And he just had, you know, he started his career in the Negro League as a teenager. But it's also the kids. There are a lot of children of the Negro Leaguers around now. Right. A lot of them won't be around in 10 years. There are grandchildren of the Negro Leaguers who won't be around in 10 years. It's time to stop fooling around and give the Negro Leagues and black baseball players who have been overlooked in the past a full, fair hearing. I'm not saying how many should be in. I'm not even sure myself if I had a vote, which I never will, who I would vote for. I mean, there are some no-brainers, but there are some marginal candidates. But let's let's get a process that gives these guys a hearing, a hearing in daylight where we can discuss it and argue about their merits. And let's not force a guy who I believe should be in the Hall of Fame, Rap Dixon, let's not force him off the ballot in a numbers game. And let's not force the voters to worry about, well, we can't vote for this guy because we got to vote for this guy. There should be a much more expansive ballot. The committee should meet much more often. And there should be far fewer voting restrictions. I'm not arguing for putting 17 people in every year. That was 2006. That was the Hall's fault for having that election and making it the be-all end-all. There are many, many intermediate ways to handle this without that kind of giant cohort going in. Right. I think the conclusion after communicating with Ted this summer, you know, when, when, when I wrote about this in August, was that there really needs to be a standing committee parallel to the early baseball golden days 
modern baseball and today's game committees. Every 10 years is not enough given the backlog. I don't know that it needs to be every two years the way that modern baseball and today's game are, but it does need to be something on a, you know, that's part of the rotation and that should probably be separate because there's just such a volume here and, and it really requires an expertise in, you know, in background in, in, in this area. You know, I, I was, I was pleased after, you know, to, to hear that there were experts involved, both in the screening committee and on the panel, and, and that, you know, there were recognizable names from the committee, uh, you know, from, from the, uh, you know, from the research community, you know, that were involved in this. And I think at least some of the, you know, some of the results reflect, and even getting past who got in, but also, you know, who, who, who still finished high uh, in the voting that, that, you know, that there was support for John Donaldson and Vic Harris. I mean, you know, it, it bothers me that, that Dick Redding was so low for, for based on you know my conclusions, but, you know, I know that there, that there are a lot of these guys that just deserve a longer look. So if I understand this correctly here, the 42 for 21 committee, you guys are, t- are what you're saying here is that, and, and this is the stat from the, from the uh, letter that Sean sent me here, 17.5% of Hall of Fame players from the segregated era come from the Negro Leagues and uh, pre-Negro Leagues black baseball, while 43% of, of the Hall of Famers from the integrated era, I get using Jackie Robinson and, and, and 1947 onward as, as, as that line, are African-American or Latino. So that even if 42 more candidates from the segregated era are elected, it would bring the percentage of Negro Leagues and black baseball candidates from the segregated era, only to about 33%. Do I have that right? Yes, you do, Jay. All right. So that is, by the way, Ted's research. And I'm, and he should be very proud of that because it is a brilliant way of showing the gulf, the, just the enormous gulf here. I agree. It really, it really does stand out when you, when you look at those numbers. So your committee is, is oriented towards trying to recognize the top 42 names. Obviously 42 has a great deal of significance when it comes to the integration of baseball because it's Jackie Robinson's uniform number. So well done, well done on landing on that. Uh, that was that a hard mathemat- choice. With that mathematical <laughs> coincidence here. So what you guys have done is to send 90 Negro Leagues and Black Baseball history uh, historians, researchers, and, and writers a ballot of 116 names, asking them to uh, just nominate any of those who they think are hall are hall worthy, and you're going to publish the top 42 results here. So, where where do you stand with with, with that process now? Are you still are you still collecting ballots? We set a deadline, and we got 51 spectacular persons reacting to what we asked for. Uh-huh. Uh, we extended the deadline another week in order to get more, but we got 51 of the 98 that we uh, we sent ballots to. Okay. And do you have preliminary results or do you want to wait to reveal the results? Yeah. Well, um, there are a little more, but I guess we're here to discuss the ones that we sent you. And I'd like Gary to introduce that topic. Yeah. I'm not sure why Ted has thrown this to me because he's the, he's the (laughs) co-watcher. But I mean, what we're trying to do is say 42 is a magic number because of Jack Roosevelt Robinson. It's not a magic number because we did divine there were 42 caliber. There are probably, I mean, in my view, there are more than 50 who deserve consideration. Deserve consideration means people should talk about them. They should examine their career. There should be a debate and there should be an up or down vote. Doesn't mean they all get in. But um, we, I think we have a good list because so far the returns are coming in where you, the candidates you would expect to be at the top are 
for example, Cannonball Redding is right up near the top. Uh, Vic Harris is very close to the top. Rap Dixon, you know, Bud Fowler is a little bit farther down, but that's what we'd expect. I mean, he's very, he's in terms of baseball hall of fame consideration, he's very obscure. You know, home run Johnson was one of the ones I felt that was, I was surprised that he, his support wasn't a little bit higher, but again, you know, his career ended in the 1910s in early in the 1910s. And so there just isn't a lot of information about him, but we have, I think a solid return. Uh, obviously the, uh, Buck O'Neill, and Bud Fowler scored high in our ballot. Buck is at the top. Bud is near the top. Bud is 10th. Yep. 10th, right. And Minoso really, because his career is mostly in the major leagues, uh, his support wasn't as strong. If his career were all in the Negro Leagues, right. of course, I, I think he's a no-brainer. I mean, you could put him as a major league baseball player. You could put him as a pioneer. It's a no-brainer either way. And, it, you know, so uh, we'd like to claim him but I'm glad that he went in on the major league ballot. You know, the position on the ballot is not so important as being on the ballot, that is being amongst the top choices. We have a really distinguished group of people. If, uh, as Ted said, we got uh, more than 50% initially. We're at 60% now of the electorate. And if you eliminated people, oh, let's say like JJ, some anonymous person who decided (laughs) not to vote because he's a member of the media, and I think that's perfectly (laughs) acceptable, if you eliminate the people we sent ballots to, like Jay um, and people who were on the committees, we're really probably pushing seventy percent right now. Okay, okay, and and that's a really good return considering a short notice and considering how complicated it is to look at one hundred sixteen people and decide do they deserve consideration for the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I you know I'm a relative newcomer to most of these guys in terms of knowing more than two or three sentences about them. The, uh, you know, writing up at length their careers of, of, the, of the candidates was an educational process for me. And it was, you know, I think one of the one of the most enjoyable from a, from a certain standpoint, just because it's not every day you get to start from, you know, knowing very little about something to, to you know, to, to sounding like an authority and, and uh, you know, be on, on the strength of your research and just, you know, learning, learning about this stuff and reading, you know, the primary sources and things like that. And so, I'm struck looking at this, you know, looking at the the preliminary results that that uh, Gary and Ted sent, which had, you know, uh, some of the players that were on the ballot, Redding, uh, Harris, uh, Donaldson, obviously uh, O'Neill and Fowler uh, and, and, and Minosa all in the top 10. That clears some that clears some space right there. But, yes. you know, also ones that we've that, uh, uh, you know, I learned about a little bit more over the summer here as as you know, my emails with Ted and understanding just the depth of you know, support that guys like Dick Lundy uh, and John Beckwith and Grant Johnson and Rap Dixon have among uh, the research community, and how those guys you know finish high in the polls of of you know the Saber Negro Leagues Committee and, and and things like that. These names are common. I see. I, I've seen a lot of. I've been reading a lot of uh, Stephen Green's book about twenty four overlooked so Negro Leagues in the Hall of Fame: the case for inducting. 24 overlooked ball players. That was sort of my uh, my map to the territory here, and I think you know 24 is a is a what seemed to me like a good number to start with in terms of appreciating just you know that you're not going to fit all these guys on one ballot. Um, that this needs to be a process, and and I know you know 42, sure, even even more here. There's a lot of these guys to discuss, especially when you start getting into you know executives and managers and and all that. The way that you know we expect the white major leagues to have hall of famers, you know, from, from those areas when we flesh it out. 
No, I think you're, you're plowing the furrow for us in the sense that you have enormous influence over how people think of the hall. It's been an, an amazing accomplishment that you have uh, achieved you. this level of influence from the outside. And you have identified the issues properly, which is these guys aren't well known, but there's a lot of information out there about them now. You, you are benefiting when you're reading about these guys' careers and writing about them. You're benefiting the scholarship of dozens of people including a half dozen to a dozen really big dogs, guys like, you know, John Holway, Jim Riley, right. Larry Lester, Phil Dixon, people like that who have been working in this area for decades and have contributed so much to the research. And now we're all building on that. It, it really is, you know, the golden era of Negro League scholarship right now. Yeah, I think that's a, that's that's a great way to put it. Golden era of Negro League scholarship, and and I think that that when we you know when you take this to the Hall of Fame, and when when I you know try to boost the signal, that's that's the term that it ne that needs to be used. I mean, you know, now Negro League stats are, are are available to you know to anybody with a browser, you know, via Baseball Reference, via Seam Heads, you know, remarkable detail, cross linked. You could pull it up just as easily as you could pull up the numbers of Willie Mays. You know, and start thinking. Start thinking about the, you know these these guys. You know, in performance terms, read the great bios that are that are that are online of some of these guys. And I think it's just it does really cry out for deeper consideration by the Hall of Fame, and and something that needs to be, you know, not just a one-off thing, an annual thing here. So, where do you go with this now? Here, how how much longer is is the voting on this? I guess December twelfth is our current deadline. And uh, hopefully we will get to numbers like Gary mentioned. Uh -huh. and, and then we probably, you know, try to expand the committee membership and build a constituency to make arguments. Okay. Right. We're, we're going to close balloting on the 12th and then announce results on the 14th. Uh, we might do some balloting or surveys after that. But the important thing after the results are announced is just push this out there so people see how many qualified candidates there are and how inadequate the discussion has been to date of all these guys. I mean, Rap Dixon got caught in a numbers game. Is probably a really good comp for Roberto Clemente. Brilliant right fielder, great arm, an electric player, high average, good power in the prime of his career. Short career, shorter than Clemente's, but he's really, you know, a really good comp as far as the Negro Leagues go. Who would ever think that somebody like that should be not even considered on this ballot? And that's yeah. because of the artificial restriction that, you know, there could only be 10 people on the ballot. Yeah, it's it's that was a name that I was surprised wasn't on there, you know, based on my discussions and my, my preliminary research. And, and you know, I know when, you know, when people started to to discuss these candidates is like, well, where's this guy? Where's this guy? And it's like, at some point you can only focus on, you know, the names, the names in front of you, where you're just going to get so bogged down and miss out on informing the, the your readers about that. Wanted to shift gears here since we're nearing the end of this discussion. Sean, you have been very much involved in trying to build a consensus to rename the most valuable player award in honor of your great-grandfather, Josh Gibson. Can you tell us a little bit uh, more about where that effort stands? Yeah, and thanks for bringing it up. As you mentioned, you know, everything happened in last year when Major League Baseball made the announcement to integrate statistics. A lot of things took place with the um, MVP, with Kennesaw Montalanis' name being on MVP award. And we all know his history in Major League Baseball, denying African-Americans an opportunity to play. 
Uh, there were several MVP, former MVP players who decided that his name should be removed. And when the BBWA did that, uh, I was reading an article and it mentioned the three candidates that were, renamed, were thinking about renaming the uh, MVP award after. And it was Josh, Frank Robinson, and Branch Rickey. And so uh, we didn't know anything about that, but, you know, I took that information and went back here to my board and um, our committee and said, hey, we just found ourselves in a race. Let's see how we can win it. And so since then, we've been on a great campaign to rename the MVP award after Josh with our MVP campaign shirts and our hashtag JG20MVP. We also have a website, JG20MVP.com. But as far as any updates, and I'm glad you brought that up because we do have an advocate on the BBWA who was pushing for Josh. I just reached out to him yesterday. And because of the lockout, <laughs> they did not have the baseball winter meetings. And so there was no discussion of right. how to move forward on this mm -hmm. issue. And so, which is, um, so basically where it stands right now, there will be no name on MVP award. We already know that for this, this past year, I mean, this past MVP award. And from what I've been told is that it'll be brought up at the baseball, I mean, at the All-Star game, All-Star weekend. Right. What they should do to move forward. So that's where we're at right now. As far as us, we'll just keep pushing our campaign and um, working as well with the Hall of Fame ballot campaign as well and keep pushing for both. Okay. Well, it sounds, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that things go in, in, in that direction. I've, you know, I, I'm certainly open to the idea of it as a BBWA member. Uh, I think it would be a great way to, to acknowledge Josh Gibson and, and, you know, the whole of Negro Leagues baseball and to, you know, build, build more of a bridge to that portion of history here in honoring the most valuable players. There's one thing, what I'll say to that too, Jay, since you are a voter, and, and what I will say to that, and I've been talking to several voters about this, you know, the MVP award would not just be about Josh Gibson. It's going to be carrying a 3,400 men that were denied the opportunity to play in the majors. I mean, of course, it would be named, the name will be Josh's name on the MVP, but it's, it's bigger than Josh Gibson. You know, Kennesaw Mountain Land has denied over 3,400 African-Americans to play baseball. And so that's where, we're, that's where our mission is. It's not just about Josh. It's about Josh carrying those guys on his shoulders. It's just that Josh has the name out there, but he's going to be right. carrying 3,400 men on his shoulders. So it's not just about one person. It's about a whole generation of men who are in that opportunity. And right. can I okay. add something here, Jay? Of course. Uh, Sean mentioned a whole bunch of things that the Gibson Foundation is doing, and they're all marvelous. However, there's one he didn't mention. We have a monthly webinar, and we've had spectacular speakers. This Saturday is our next session, and uh, Gary is our speaker. And we look forward to that. And we have 10 of the 12 spots for next year filled. That's not a hint, Jay, but I think we could work <laughs> you in if you wanted. Oh, but, I'd be uh, honored. Wow. Yes, I, I just wanted to. I would be honored. Okay. Well, we um, you, we may be in touch. I, I just wanted to mention that because I've had a lot of fun working with Sean. And I think it's a great product that we put out every month. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would be excited to, to participate in that. Yeah, Jay, I would just I just want to say that we plan to be active. The committee is sort of an ad hoc committee now. This came about because of the inspiration uh, for the Gibson Foundation's campaign for the MVP award and Ted's and my conversations about how unlikely it was a substantial cohort of Negro leaders are going to be elected in the near future. That's how this came about. But we intend to expand this after releasing our results and put a lobbying effort out there which says why not now? How in God's name can you wait another 10 years? And as you pointed out, Jay, how many times the remaining 
white ball players from the segregated era have been picked over and how few times the black ball players have. We intend to hammer that point and hope that people of goodwill and who are open-minded will see the merits of the case. And okay. I will say this, Jay, just to wrap it up, is that for more information about our, our uh, we do have a website, which is 424FOR21.org. So that's 42FOR21.org, that people who's listening can go to our website and learn more about our project. Okay. Well, I hope people out there will will uh, will take that to heart and check out the work you guys are doing for 42 for 21 and for the Josh Gibson for MVP, Josh Gibson MVP naming, and just really tap into this wealth of research that's out there as well as far as the Negro Leagues and, and all of that. So thank you guys for coming on here and telling me a bit about this. And uh, I look forward to seeing uh, the results of your poll and to seeing where this effort takes you next. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jay, for offering us this opportunity to reach your audience, which I'm sure is very vast. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guest is Spencer Strider, 23-year-old pitcher in the Atlanta Braves organization. Spencer, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the fact that you were featured here at Fangraphs this past June in print. And at the time you were pitching in high A, you'd started the season in low A. And October 1st, you actually made your major league debut. So looking back, I guess, how was that even possible? I mean, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds storybook. Yeah, you know, I, they, they kind of sat me down in spring training about a week or so into coming down to camp. I was a late addition to big league camp. And so came in through a couple bullpens and things just really weren't there. And they said, look, you have an elite fastball and that's your strength. You need to simplify things, focus on what you're good at. And then let's add one thing at a time, start with a slider and then we'll, then we'll go somewhere else and then we'll keep adding, but let's do one thing at a time, focus on what you're good at. At the time it was a, it was a tough conversation. But it was exactly what I needed to hear, and it opened the door for me to uh, to run away with the season. And um, you know that was that was a good thing. Could you possibly have imagined, Spencer? You know, not even during that spring training conversation, but when we spoke in June, that you would end up in the big leagues this year. Without sounding arrogant, I always thought there was a chance going into the season. I I told a couple people who were close to me just because I I'm a sometimes overly confident person within my own circles that I thought I could do it. But just knowing, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to the alt site during the COVID season in 2020 and pitch against what was essentially AAA baseball and, uh, you know, see how my stuff played and see what the difficulty level was. And coming out of there, I was very confident that I could go into the off season and make a couple adjustments and knowing what I need to work on, I would come into the spring training and just hit the ground running. And of course it was the exact opposite. I just, I looked awful, but once, once I got to, to double a and I got that promotion to double a, I, I, I thought, okay, there, I can really buckle down here and make this thing happen, but I'm still shocked. It still shocks me to this day. And speaking of shocking, we should talk about your debut, which came against the, the New York Mets. Uh, I guess the second batter that you faced shocked you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. 
you know, I, I had him beat for sure. And I, we sh- probably should have thrown a fastball, but threw him a slider. He swung and missed first pitch slider down and in and the right exact right pitch, right where I'm trying to go with it into a lefty down and in. And then with two strikes, try to throw it again and maybe had a little bit too much horizontal break on it and didn't, didn't bite downward as much as I would have wanted. And he just was early, pulled his hands in and he hit it. I know, I, I think it only had like a, like a 0.8 or 0.08 expected batting average. It was only like 88 miles an hour off the bat, but still a home run. So, Right. That being Brandon Nimmo, of course, who hit that. Yeah. I've had pitchers tell me, Spencer, that they were very nervous running in to make their debut. And it was when they gave up their first hit that it just sort of shook them back into reality of, of hey, let's go. And, and mm-hmm. they, suddenly they were more comfortable. Did that happen with you? No, I would say it was the opposite, actually. I, I was more confident until I gave the home run because, especially coming off my slider, which the whole season, as I mentioned a minute ago, was kind of my 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 work pitch. You know, that's what I'm working on all the time is the slider. And so when when the slider was good and I knew it was good, I was confident. And when it struggled, I thought, well, I'm missing a weapon here. And so uh, warming up to come into the game, my slider was was all over the place. And I thought, oh, boy. Hopefully these guys are, are late somehow, but um, no, I thought, oh boy, well, there, there you go. Slider is bad today. And so I kind of had to talk myself off the ledge. Right. And we are going to talk about your slider in a few minutes, but first your second appearance came against the Mets two days later. And I noticed that the first batter that you faced was Brandon Nemo. Mm-hmm. How much were you thinking about the home run and about sequencing at that moment? Not much at all at that point. You know, I, I think he probably he probably thought I would be a little reluctant to throw him a slider, but I imagine that everybody in that lineup felt that way. That that's it has to be the scouting report against me is that you know the slider is the the question pitch. He's going to attack fastball up in the zone. So, but I know that if I if I execute what I'm supposed to do, then it, it doesn't really matter what the hitter's thinking. And that's that's kind of I think that's the case for any pitcher. But of course, it happens that way where the guy who hits the home run is the guy I have to face in my very first batter next outing. And you did retire him to get out of the inning. You would replace, I believe it was Charlie Martin. Mm-hmm. And you, and your team had the lead. And I think it was maybe what the third or fourth inning. Uh, you ended up being credited with your first big league win. Were you actually aware of that sitting on the bench after you came out that you could get, you know, the W? No. In fact, I don't think anybody realized it until we were shaking hands in the clubhouse after the game. And I think it was Tyler Matzik who was standing next to me and said, wait a minute, did you get the win? And I said, I have no idea. It never occurred to me. He's like, dude, you got the win. I'm like, oh, all right. Well, that's that's pretty neat. Kind of snaked that W, but I'll take it. And you were, of course, pitching in relief, but you are, or at least have been a starter. Do you have many thoughts on pitcher wins in baseball? Um, Yeah, you know, I think that there's, there's still value in wins and losses. I mean, it, I think if anything, you can say that if a pitcher is accumulating wins, he's at the very least giving his team a competitive chance. I, I don't think you can base a pitcher's you know value entirely off of their record, but cert- certainly for starters, there's uh, there's something to be to be said for wins. I don't, I don't know that it should be a determining factor in contract, you know, numbers, things like that necessarily, like some of these other more advanced comprehensive statistics. But I, I, I think that record is still useful. 
Yes, I know looking back at the uh, the print interview that we did back in June, I think that the first line in the piece may have been Spencer Strider is a pitching nerd. So I think maybe you're not a guy who's going to look first at the one last record. Yeah, no, I, I, I have my my little goodie basket of, uh, of advanced stats that I like for sure. And we definitely are going to jump into that in a bit, too. But first, I want to bring up that uh, while we have not done our top prospect list at Fangraphs yet, Baseball America is well into theirs. And a few weeks ago, when they did their Braves top prospect list, they had you listed as the club's closer in their projected 2025 lineup. As a starting pitcher, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Are you a future closer? Would you like to be a future closer? I'm fine to do anything. If they call me to, you know, they can't call me right now, but if they called me and said, we need you to play third base, I would, you know, jump into the cages tomorrow gladly. But, you know, I just want to play in the big leagues for as long as I can and win as many games as possible. But I like starting. I mean, I there's just a, you know, a different preparation and a different mindset that's very appealing. And uh, not to say that closing isn't, or just relief pitching in general isn't, uh, you know, that same type of high leverage, engaging mindset. But I, I'm a, I want to be a starter, and I'm going to pursue that until they tell me otherwise. And when that day comes, you know, I'll, I'll happily jump into the bullpen and try and contribute that way. The Baseball uh, America blurb on you, Spencer, you know, mentioned your slider. You've referred to it as a slider multiple times since we started speaking. When we spoke back in June, you told me that you don't categorize it as either a slider or a curveball. Has that changed at all? Uh, I, I guess it has changed a little bit. Back when we spoke, I was still trying to throw a hard vertical breaking ball, which I guess is still my intention, but I'm more focused on velocity and spin direction than anything else. If the ball is spinning at the right axis or uh, in a range of axis that I am okay with, and the velocity is at a minimum of 85 miles an hour, then I'm happy with the pitch. Whatever the movement looks like, I don't care because if it's if it's spinning the right way and the velocity's where it should be, then it's gonna it's gonna be effective. Yeah, what did your velocity top out at this season? One oh one in triple A. My one triple A appearance, which was my first relief appearance since I guess my goodness, my freshman year in college, I hit one oh one and then I guess I hit a hundred once or twice in the big leagues when I when I made my two appearances. And much as pitchers like to see a W next to their name, I know that pitchers love to see that triple digit up on the scoreboard as well. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's there was a time, you know, when I was a little kid where, you know, if I knew I was going to be throwing 100 miles an hour, I would have I would have walked around, you know, a little more confident. But because <laughs> that's certainly been an aspiration of mine for, for a large part of my life. But, you know, the focus now is where is it going and what's what's coming after it. So. And that's that's the the separator for most guys. And just how important is velocity to your game? You know, you've spoken uh, about spin access, you know, spin rate, etc. So, how much does the velo itself matter? I think it's dependent upon the pitcher. For me, I think it's a hundred percent. You know, of what makes my fastball good. Not necessarily a hundred percent, but there's no way to to sort of categorize or attribute the you know importance of the 
the spin or the axis, the you know the vertical break and the velocity. It, it's it's not an either or. You need my fastball needs to have the spin axis close to noon, and the spin efficiency of a hundred, and you know my approach angle, and the velocity. All of those things combine to make my fastball. Without one of them, it doesn't matter. It's not the same pitch. There, you know, and the same can be said for a sinker ball, or if the, their axis is shifted in the wrong direction, or you know, even slightly, or they're throwing too hard or too slow. I mean, it it can throw off the entire way that they're used to throwing that pitch, and and it, it completely takes away from it from what makes it good. If I'm recalling correctly, Spencer, you mentioned to me this summer that a lot of pitchers don't maybe necessarily understand what works for them and are a little hesitant to throw the ball in certain areas of the zone. Whereas your fastball is very effective. You're, if you're throwing it like middle up, like just mm-hmm. above the belt, which to a lot of hitters, you know, they drive those baseballs. Mm-hmm. Can you talk talk about that a bit about maybe the, I don't know if it's uh, guts or confidence or knowledge that helps you just basically throw baseball right down the middle. Yeah. So the big key or the cue for me that is key is denting the catcher's mask. That's the phrase that the uh, pitching coordinator with the Braves, Paul Davis, always texts me and, and calls me and tells me that and then hangs up or he'll, you know, every time he sees me, it's the first thing he says to me is dent the mask, dent the mask, because that's where I'm trying to go with the ball. If I can throw a fastball through the catcher's helmet, then that pitch is 99.999% of the time going to produce a favorable result for me. That's how my fastball works. I mean, it's it's a vertical break, high vertical break, high velocity fastball. I create some good deception with my delivery and hide the ball well. And so it guys pick it up late, it gets on them fast. And a pitch like that plays best at the top of the zone where the hitters have the hardest time perceiving the movement and the destination of the ball. Some guys who don't throw as hard have a fastball that moves in a similar way or they maybe don't have a fastball that has the right metrics for pitching up in the zone, but they create deception with their delivery. They're herky-jerky and their ball is hard to pick up. I mean, those guys should be pitching up in the zone as well, or maybe not as, as, as a high high of a rate as I am, but there's certainly value in throwing up in the zone, just as there's value in throwing other parts of the zone. But I think that's that's something that's going to change in baseball. If it, I mean, it's already changing, is the uh, the confidence to throw up in the zone, because that's just as more information comes out and guys understand more of the data that we have access to now, they'll, they'll see the, the benefit of it. And of course, if hitters start adjusting to that, well, pitchers will then need to readjust and maybe, you know, change locations. Right. Right. And that's, that's the great thing about baseball. And the great thing about pitching is it's not like you deprive yourself of the ability to throw down in the zone by throwing up in the zone. I can still throw a ball low and outside when I want to or need to, uh, those are certainly, you know, skills you have to learn. I mean, you know, watch a guy like Walker Bueller, you know, throwing fastballs low and away. Brady Singer, he's a sinker baller, but you know, I think at one point he was leading the league in called strike three and throwing front door two seamers, back door two seamers that are just take pitches. But he's going to a place where he's not even trying to induce a swing. Walker Bueller's throwing a four seam fastball low in the zone to get a take, not even trying to induce a swing. But he can do the he can do the other part of it where he'll go up in the zone and completely challenge a guy. And, you know, if you can, it's basically how, how many weapons can you give yourself? And you don't need to put all your eggs in one basket, but everybody needs to understand what their strengths are so that they can figure out what's their best plan of attack. 
Lance Lynn, of course, being a pitcher who is predominantly fastballs, but he really throws three different fastballs. Mm-hmm. Are you basically throwing the same fastball at all times? Yeah, I only throw a four-seam fastball. I, I don't have a two-seamer. I don't have a cutter. Uh, sometimes my slider, I guess, profiles towards a cutter. But no, I, I, I throw a four-seam fastball, and almost you know, 95% of the time, my goal is to throw the ball as hard as I can right at the catcher's mask right at the top of the zone where I'm getting a called strike. If they take, I'm getting a foul ball. If they make contact or a pop-up or I'm getting a swing and a miss. And I led the Braves organization. I'm pretty sure if not a fair amount of minor league baseball in pop-up rate. And I know I had phenomenal swing and miss numbers um, on my fastball. And so, you know, it's working and that's unless, unless something changes and it stops working, that's, that's how I'm going to attack hitters. Right. Of course, making that work at the big league level will be the key. Do you feel, uh, Spencer, that with your fastball, that if you are able to you know, further fine-tune your slider, that you can get by as a starter as almost entirely a two-pitch pitcher, maybe just occasionally showing the changeup? Or do you really need to develop a league average changeup? Not to put myself anywhere near the same universe as this guy, but I look at Garrett Cole for what I want to pitch like. I we have similar fastballs that we use the same way. You know, his slider is a similar movement profile to my slider, and he throws his change up about four to seven percent of the time. And it's mostly a two O pitch or a third time through the lineup two strike pitch. You know, it's some, something that he's he's pulling out in a very you know small sample size of, of situations. And so I think the changeup is going to be huge. I'm going to have to develop a changeup. And it's just like I said before, you know, I'm not going to just focus on two things or, or, or not work on something else or not try to give myself another weapon because I have two things that are working or one thing that is working. You know, I want to have as many tools as I can to get hitters out. But, you know, my strengths are the fastball and then the slider. And so I've got to master those things before I start trying to to add a bunch of other stuff. And with mastering pitches in mind, you mentioned uh, Paul Davis, your pitching coordinator, a little bit ago. I'm realizing that because you pitched at uh, five different levels or four different levels this year, including the big leagues, that is uh, five pitching coaches that you've had this season. Yeah, pitching coach, low A, high A, double A, triple A in the big leagues. So that is five, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Spent the most time in Double A. Pitching coach there was Dan Myers, also the head coach. Uh, so he had the most time to work on, work with me, and and deal with my my nonsense and everything, and all my ridiculous questions um, and antics. And uh, you know, we I feel like most of the progress was made there. That's where I that's where I developed the slider almost in a week. I mean, in in a one bullpen, and then refined my mechanics the most in Double A and made the biggest changes to my routine in the weight room, you know, pregame, warming up, recovery, everything was in double A. And I, I think, you know, from, from what I've heard, that's, that's kind of how double A is. That's the filter where guys, you know, experience the most adversity and you are going to have the biggest opportunity to make adjustments. I feel obligated, Spencer, to ask you for an example of a ridiculous question that you asked uh, Paul Davis this summer. <laughs> <laughs> um, geez. After my first outing in double A, I was frustrated because that was really the first difficult outing I had in pro ball. And I, the day after I wanted to throw some pitches off the mound, the day after 
I started and Dan Meyer looked at me and just, just kind of rolled his eyes and then just like looked off at somebody else. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's a stupid question. I'm just not gonna, I'm gonna forget that happened. Right. So I guess it's Dan Meyer who, uh, who I met, not, not Paul Davis. Yeah. He, he definitely had to deal with quite a bit of stupid questions. And it sounds though, Spencer, that you and he worked a lot on your slider. So what was the eureka moment in the bullpen where you realized that you had found something? Yeah. So it was with him, Dan Meyer, and then a teammate of mine, Sean McLaughlin in AA, who's just a, a wizard with track man and, and data. And he's a great pitching coach, even though he's still playing. I mean, he, my goodness, did he, he give me quite a bit of good help when I was in Mississippi. But what he told me is, you know, I've looked at your video. He said, I looked at your video and, you know, I've seen your ball metrics and your, your breaking ball stinks and you have no idea how to throw a breaking ball. And I said, I completely agree with you. I would love to have a, some type of solution to this and I've yet to find one. So I'm open. I'm open ears, man. You know, tell me anything. And he said, you have to feel supination because you are not supinating, which is like, you know, as you're throwing, like throwing a football. When you throw a football, you supinate through release. Your pinky is in front towards your target. And that's what allows the ball to have that football spin, just like a slider. A slider has a true bullet spin axis. And so my wrist was in a way like completely bent so that my palm was flush to the target and my fingers were parallel with the first and third base line, if that makes any sense, if you can visualize that. And so I was basically under the ball pushing it with no power. So if I was able to create the right axis, there was no way I could throw it hard enough. And when I threw it hard enough, there was no way I could make it spin the right way. So we got in the bullpen, played around with a little bit of stuff and changed my grip, tucked my thumb under the ball to lock out my wrist into a supinated position. And almost instantly, having seen it, how it explains to me, felt it, it was, it was there. It was a slider. And it was that bullpen. And then the next game, I threw like uh, maybe a dozen or so sliders that almost all of them were swings and misses. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. And it was just almost overnight. No, what you were saying is very similar to what Kendall Graveman told me during the postseason, standing uh, outside the visiting dugout at Fenway, that until he pitched for the Mariners, he really did not understand how to throw, properly throw a breaking ball. Mm-hmm. And, and he explained you know, much as you did about the way that he was holding the baseball. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's amazing that, you know, through all the the effort to learn a breaking ball, because that's been the biggest struggle other than command in my pitching career is that I've never, I've never encountered the right way to throw a breaking ball or, or really figured out what I was doing wrong in my hand. Uh, I knew how the ball needed to spin. It was just I had I had the complete wrong approach to make it do what I needed it to do. And so once I once I was given that visually and and you know uh, hearing it as well, it was pretty simple. Yeah, what's coming to mind, Spencer? And we're starting to to run low on time here. But uh, again, what's coming to mind with the uh, you know learning throw breaking ball and what you were saying earlier about not liking to categorize at one point your your breaking ball. Uh, Corey Kluber was always big on that. He never really wanted to say slider or curve. Mm-hmm. And when I look at some point at your Clemson bio, you know that's of course where you went to school. I think you cited Kluber as uh, maybe your pitching hero or or something of of that like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, have a Corey Kluber bobblehead sitting next to me right now. Actually, he uh, 
he was my favorite player growing up for sure. Him and Casey Blake, actually. But once I was more of a pitcher, I sort of moved over to Kluber. I grew up a huge Cleveland fan. My, my family's all from uh, Northern Ohio. And so Kluber was just, you know, completely dominant, won two Cy Youngs in Cleveland, uh, went to the World Series in 16, and, and he's, his breaking ball was absurd, still is. And so, yeah, Kluber, if I could have thrown Kluber's breaking ball, I, you'd think I would have been able to throw Kluber's breaking ball, how much I watched him, but I never learned how. So I don't know that I ever will learn how to throw his breaking ball. No, I think that is really a, a God-given thing as much as anything when, when right. you're talking pitches like that. Yeah, speaking of being a big Cleveland sports fan, the Indians are now, of course, the Guardians. You pitch for a team that somewhat, I don't know what the word is, controversially, I guess, was in the news for the tomahawk chop and chant during the World mm-hmm. Series. Is that anything that you would want to share thoughts on? Uh, you know, I I think there's a lot of... Yeah, it's a hard thing to to articulate. You know, there's a lot of of I guess realizations maybe is the right right word that we're making as a as a country and as as a society, whatever you want to say, um, fan, sports fans. And I think it's all it's all harmless. I really do. I don't I don't have any problem with the the Cleveland name change. I I rather like the name to be honest with you. I don't feel any anger over it if we determine that. You know, getting rid of the tomahawk chop or, you know, changing a logo, even changing the name of the the Braves is the right course of action. Then I think people should, you know, try to disregard the superficial things, you know, the the changes that that are being made, because I think it's it's really the underlying connotation that is what we're targeting, taking, you know, symbolism from cultures that we've we've maybe mistreated in the past, however you want to talk about it. But I think it's a rather frivolous thing to get frustrated about. You know, I fully understand people's frustration. However, uh, it's all for the best, and it's it's going to be easily forgotten. I, I I point people to the Washington football team name change that that's been embraced as much frustration as there was initially, and I think people even like the name better now. And look at they're keeping the Washington football team as silly as we thought that name was. So I, I really I hope that that we can have that discussion sometime, and people are you know open to it, but. In the time being, I think that maybe it's it's probably not the, the worst thing going on right now, Tomahawk Chop. One of the worst things going on right now by far in sports is, of course, the lockout. You mentioned earlier not being able to communicate with the organization. You were not on the 40-man roster until, I believe, your call-up. So things have changed quite a lot. You know, you're a young pitcher. Uh, you are technically still a prospect. Uh, but you are now in the union. So how do you see, I know this is a hard question, how do you how do you view this winter in Major League Baseball? I suppose for me, nothing's changing other than lack of communication with some certain with certain uh, members of the organization. But uh, you know i'm I'm prepared for spring training starting on time, and it doesn't change my day to day. you know I, I think having been a fan so recently in my life, I am certainly, aware of people's perception of this being, you know, obviously it's an argument over how to spend billions of dollars or how to break up billions of dollars. And so that I get that there's not a lot of sympathy to be had. And, and I, I sympathize with that, honestly. I sympathize with the sympathy. But some of these things need to change for sure. Some of the, the service time rules and everything. My biggest problem with, with these union and owners uh, arguments is the whatever fallback there is on minor leaguers. You know, I, I think about last year with the season taking so long to start coming out of, 
you know, the, the worst of COVID there in the summer, I mean, there were minor league players whose pay was dependent upon that season starting, going to the alt site and getting getting to play. And, you know, the guys the guys at the top who were really headlining the argument, they didn't have much to lose. And so I, I hope that at some point in the near future, we can sort of absolve the minor leagues into the union as, as you know, much of a change as that would be. But I, I just, I don't think that, the owners and the players can continue to argue over just themselves because there's more at stake here with fans and the state of the game and minor leaguers and everything else. Especially post-COVID. And the minor league thing you mentioned is obviously a subject that a lot of us care about, but we, you know, which we don't have time for. So I think we will close with the World Series. I am assuming you have a World Series ring? To my knowledge, I will be getting one. I do not have one at the moment, but I suppose I, I am getting one. As crazy as that seems, all all two and a third of my innings. Hey, you help the team get there, Spencer. It uh, you know it takes an army, as they say. It's not just uh, twenty four sure. guys anymore. Yeah, where were you during the World Series? I was in Atlanta. Yeah, I I was a part of the uh, I guess I guess you could call it an alt site reserve squad, taxi squad, whatever you want to say. We were in our AAA facility at Gwinnett. Uh, there was about a dozen of us staying ready and throwing live ABs and taking BP, working out just in case some guys got hurt. And as you saw, some guys did get hurt. Kyle Wright, and, you know, Tucker Davidson went up and they they helped in the World Series. They helped, you know, Kyle Wright especially helped win a game there. And so that was cool. It was cool to be a part of that and get to go to the games at home in the World Series. And uh, that, was, that was great. And in a perfect world, Spencer, the World Series ring that you will be getting soon will not be the only one that you get in the major leagues. Yeah, I, I uh, would like to think that there will be more to come. I'm certainly going to do everything I can to, to bring that about. But um, first season to get a major league ring, that's pretty uh, that's pretty neat. So I'm, I'm grateful for everything that I got to experience this, this past year. No, it is, it is very neat. And uh, on the subject of grateful, we are grateful that you came on to Fangraphs Audio. And I would like to wish you uh, a great Christmas season, which is coming very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You as well. Thanks, Spencer, again. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Big thanks to Sean Gibson, Gary Gillette, Ted Knorr, and Spencer Strider all for joining us for this episode. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider recommending it to a friend. Word of mouth is the best way for us to help grow our audience and an easy way to help us out. You should also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It's free to your inbox every weekday with all of the good stuff we have going on at the website, which is plenty. We hope you have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.